Well, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll finish this chapter out beginning at verse 24. I want to preach a message to you entitled, Running to Win the Prize. Running to Win the Prize. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. These are the words of God. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Jim Weich was a professional snooker player from Canada who is best known for the work that he did after his playing career as a billiards commentator. Weich once said, the difference between a good competitor and a great competitor is from the shoulders up. What Weich meant was that a good player must be a master of the physical aspect of the game. He must have proper mechanics, he must have a good form, but in order to be a great player, that which will take his game to the next level, he must be a master mentally as well. He must have a well-planned strategy. He must be able to outthink his opponent. He must be able to win the tactical battles if he's going to claim the number one prize. Moreover, he must have the mental determination to discipline himself in all areas of life to be the greatest player that he can be. Well, as Paul closes chapter 9, he employs a similar athletic metaphor and he applies it to the Christian life. The sport that Paul has in his mind isn't a game of pool. It's a sport that captivated the culture of the Corinthians. You'll remember, perhaps you won't remember, because I haven't said anything about it since the very first message of this series, that Corinth was located on a narrow strip of land that connected mainland Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Uh, Such a narrow strip of land with the sea on both sides is a geographical feature called an isthmus. Corinth was located on an isthmus. And the isthmus of Corinth was the most famous in all of ancient history. Primarily because it was the home of the Isthmian Games. By the first century, the Isthmian Games had become the Super Bowl of Greek society. The popularity and prominence of the Isthmian Games surpassed even that of the Olympics. The Olympics were held every four years, but the Isthmian Games were an annual event. And competitors from all over the empire would come and they would represent their city in this multi-sport pantheon of athletics. Those competing in the Games would devote many months to rigorous preparation. Nothing was more important to them than winning the ultimate prize. At the end of the game, the competitors would stand before the bema, before the judgment seat of, of, of the games. <laughs> and there the winners would be decked with a garland for their victory. 
And they would be declared as winners before the whole empire. But the losers would be rejected. And they would have nothing to show for their efforts. And it is this renowned event that Paul calls to mind as an illustration of the Christian life. If you've been with us thus far in our exposition of 1 Corinthians, then you know the context of this passage. Paul is in the midst of a discussion on the proper use and limitation of our Christian liberties. And thus far, he's used himself as an example of someone who abstains from his liberties for the sake of the gospel, for the furtherance of the gospel, for the glory of God. And now, he's going to invoke this illustration of these disciplined and trained athletes as an example of how the Christian life ought to be lived. What Paul is doing at the end of chapter 9 is he's saying to the Corinthians, look at the Isthmian games. Look at those athletes that are competing. That is how you should live your Christian life. This is not the first time in 1 Corinthians that Paul has used a metaphor to allude to our life as Christians and our future evaluation. He's used the analogy of a farmer who tends the field and waters the crops. He's used the analogy of a wise master builder who follows the divine blueprint and only uses the prescribed materials. And in all of these analogies, and here in chapter 9 as well, Paul's point is this. As Christians, we must be willing to do everything for the gospel's sake. The gospel is more important than eating meat sacrificed to idols. The gospel is more important than receiving financial compensation. The gospel is more important than indulging in our Christian liberties. The gospel is more important than our comforts and our freedoms and our securities. We must be willing to sacrifice in other areas of our life so that we can be the best Christians that we can be. Paul was willing to do anything for the gospel's sake. Paul was willing to take long and dangerous journeys, never knowing if he would return. Paul was willing to be imprisoned. Uh, Paul was willing to be beaten and stoned and left for dead. None of us know anything about what it means to take a beating for the gospel. We, We may have received some pushback from some friends and family for our stands as Christians, but none of us know what it's like to be tied to the whipping post in town hall and to be beaten with a cat of nine tails for our faith in Christ. Paul was willing to die for the sake of the gospel, and eventually that's just what he did. Just as the competitors at the Isthmian Games (coughs) were willing to shape and mold their entire lives so that they could cross the finish line And receive the prize. So too must we live the Christian life. In order to receive crowns. To lay at the feet of Jesus. Let me say at the outset. That it matters how you live the Christian life. It matters to God. It matters to other believers. It matters to your church. It even matters to the world. It matters right now, 
And it will matter on the last day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It matters how you live the Christian life. Do not use the excuse that, well, because you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that nothing you do matters. Now, anytime a text such as this is preached, it must be handled with great balance. There must be a biblical balance between warning and promise. This text, verses 24 to 27, largely is a warning. And so it might seem as if the pendulum this morning is a little bit swung heavy on the warning side. But I want you to understand that we need a balance between warning and promise. This text warns us that if we don't run well, we will not receive the prize. The reality is that there will be those who will stand before Jesus on the last day and they will not have as much to show for their Christian lives as they would have had they better run the race. And when we are tempted to become lazy and lethargic and complacent, we need these warnings to remind us that we are called to run so as to win the prize. However, we must never forget the promise of the gospel that all who are in Jesus will persevere to the end and will cross the finish line. Our running and our striving are not derived from a strength within us, but from the faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. You need the warnings to remind you that you must cross the finish line, but you need the promises to remind you that you will cross the finish line. So when you get tired, and when you get exhausted, and when you get discouraged, run with your eyes fixated upon Jesus, who is the starting block, the finish line, and everything in the middle. There's a number of things I want to show you from this text. The first is this. I want you to see in verse 24, the race. Paul begins by saying, Know ye not. See, you know this. Uh, This is not new information. And, And a lot of good biblical preaching is not presenting to you new information that you didn't know. But it's presenting to you things that you did know that you need to be reminded of. You know this. Know ye not. That they which run in a race, run all. Literally, everybody in a race is there for one purpose. At the Isthmian Games, runners came from all over the empire. Runners who had spent months training and preparing their bodies for this one singular race. Runners who desire nothing more than to cross the finish line and claim first place. These men did not come to gaze around at the crowd and soak in the ambience. They came for one reason, to run. That is why that they were there. And the exhortation to you in this verse is, if you're a Christian, be a Christian. God did not save you so that you could sit on your hands and twiddle your thumbs. God did not place you in His church to be a passive spectator. God has placed you on the starting blocks of the Christian life. And He is calling you to move out by grace and run the race that is set before you. Notice that the Christian life is not likened to a docile activity that requires no effort or contribution on our part. The Christian life is not likened to your Sunday nap in your recliner. The Christian life is 
not even compared to a leisurely stroll in the park. The Christian life is compared to a race. It's compared to the most important race in the world, which the Isthmian Games were at the time. And you, Christian, are compared to a runner. Paul says, everyone in this race runs, but one receives the prize. In the Isthmian Games, there were no participation trophies. You didn't get a prize just for showing up. I remember when I played Little League Baseball, maybe it was T-ball, I remember one year, and this is typically how it goes, one year I was on a team and we won every game. We were the best team in Clayton County. And we had a banquet at the end of the year and they gave all of us trophies. And the next year I was on a different team and we lost every single game. But we still had a banquet and we still all received a trophy. And I remember thinking, well, what was the point of last season? Winning all those games if I'm going to get a trophy either way. Well, Paul says, only one receives the prize. If you want to receive a trophy at the Isthmian Games and in the Christian life, <coughs> you actually have to win the race. Now at this point, Paul's metaphor doesn't equate on a one-to-one ratio with the reality of the Christian life. Paul is not saying that in the church of Corinth or in this church today that only one member would actually win the prize. All of us can press on and win the prize. But here's what this truth does communicate to us. Winning the prize is not automatically guaranteed by virtue of being in the race. It's not merely enough for you to start the race well and have a few highlights along the way. But in reality, you're doing good just to limp across the finish line. And some of you excuse times of apathy and times of backsliding by pointing out periods of your Christian life earlier in which you were walking closer to the Lord. It doesn't matter to God how you were running five months ago or five years ago. What matters to God is how you're doing right now. Some of you were so zealous for the Lord when God first saved you and you were ready to run and you blasted off the starting block, but what you failed to understand is that this race is not a hundred yard dash. This race is a long marathon. And not too long after you started running, you became exhausted and you fizzled out. And you became content to just walk or to crawl or to just find you a seat in the bleachers and sit and watch while other Christians ran their race. You had great plans. You wanted to become a student of Scripture. You wanted to become a servant of the church. But now, you struggle to dust off your Bible more than once a month. And your church attendance amounts to little more than sneaking in a minute before service starts and rushing out a minute after service is over. And whenever you feel burdened about the way you're running your race, you tell yourself that it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you're saved by grace and you'll cross the finish line one way or the other. Listen to what God says in verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one 
receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. Yeah, it's true. If you're in Christ, you will cross the finish line. But if you abuse the grace that gets you there to remove any responsibility on your part to run well, then be assured there will be no crown waiting for you at the finish line. While other Christians are receiving their rewards, you will be receiving nothing. And while other Christians are laying down their rewards and casting their crowns at Jesus' feet, you will not be able to do so because you didn't run in order to obtain. Well, having issued this sharp warning, Paul gives this admonition given to each and every one of us is not only the warning against unprofitable running, but also the promise that all those who run and run well will receive their heavenly reward. Run that ye may obtain. It's implied there that if you run that you may obtain, you will obtain. We all have our unique God-ordained race to run. You're not called to run my race. I'm not called to run your race. You can't keep up with me on my race. And I can't keep up with you on your race. We are not competing against each other as Christians. In fact, you will run your race best when you surround yourself with other believers that are also running their race. In Christian fellowship, we need to seek out those who are running hard for the glory of God. As Steve Lawson says, it's hard to fly with the eagles when you're flying with the turkeys. When my race takes me down a difficult path and I begin to slow down and I begin to become fatigued, I I need to be able to look at others. I need to be able to look at you. And I need to be able to see the vigor and the gusto that you're running with. And I need to receive that encouragement to likewise run, to go on for God. So let me encourage you not to become lax or lackadaisical as you run this race. Your brothers and sisters need to see you running well. Not only is your future reward at stake, but you have the opportunity to be such a blessing to others along the way as you run with them. And I hope that the prayer and desire of all of you is to be standing side by side one another on that final day before the Bema, before the judgment seat of Christ, each receiving a reward because we have all run so as to obtain it. May we all be there on that day, standing side by side with each other, even as we are standing side by side here in this life, receiving our rewards together. Secondly, in verse 25, I want you to see the restraint the restraint in verse 25. Paul says, And every man who striveth for the mastery. Again, we see the idea that the objective of the Christian life is not simply to limp across the finish line. Do not settle for mediocrity. Strive for the mastery. Strive to be the best Christian that you can possibly be by the grace of God. Strive to be as close to the Lord as you can possibly be. Country music really messes up a lot of what we believe as Christians. 
And you'll hear songs like, well, just build me a little cabin somewhere on the outskirts of heaven. I don't want a little cabin on the outskirts of heaven. I want to be as close to the throne as I can be. I I don't want to straggle and scratch and claw and barely make it there. No, I want to run into heaven and receive rewards and receive a crown and go right to the Lord Jesus Christ and bow at His feet and put it before Him. I want to strive for the mastery. That's what Paul is urging you to do. Well, if you're going to strive for the mastery, Paul says, all those who strive for the mastery are temperate in all things. One who is temperate is one who exercises self-control. This athletic self-discipline is an illustration of the self-control that we must have as Christians if we're going to run and receive a reward. The athletes who competed in the Isthmian Games were the most disciplined members of society. The Greek culture was one that prided itself in lavish living and indulgence, but not for these athletes. They knew that if they were going to be successful running their race, they were going to have to be different than the rest of society. The status quo was not good enough for them. They tailored every aspect of their life to improve their ability to perform. And they had restraints on what they ate, on how much they ate, on when they slept, on how much they slept, on how they trained, on how they spent their time on what they studied, on where they went, even what they wore. All of these things were shaped around the lens of how does this affect my performance as a competitor. Furthermore, in order to compete, the runners had to take an oath where they promised that they abided by the rules. Not only in the race itself, but before the race, There was a 10-month period of training, and this period of training had regulations on it that the runners had to follow. In the same way that athletes today have restrictions against using performance-enhancing drugs and other things of that sort. Every aspect of their lives was governed by the task that was looming before them. And they had to abide by the rules, and they had to give it their all, and they had to discipline themselves. So when race day came, they would be in their peak condition to run. Throughout the training period, they had the liberty to indulge themselves. They could have had a cheat day. Uh, They could have slept through the alarm. They, they, They could have slacked off on the training. They had the liberty to do these things. But they knew that even though they had the right, such things were not conducive to their goal, and thus they completely abstained from them. On race day, the runners did not show up in steel-toed boots. In fact, many of them ran entirely naked. Because they didn't want even one extra ounce of weight encumbering them and slowing them down. This arduous training, this stringent preparation, there's no doubt that this was difficult. But the runners did all of these things Willingly. Because the reward of winning mattered more to them than the difficulties in the process to win. 
Had they not trained and prepared, they would have only set themselves up for failure. They would have finished the games with frustration and discouragement. And so too it is in the Christian life. Listen to me. Many of your discouragements come when you attempt to run without the necessary preparation. Many of your discouragements come when you allow your flesh to indulge itself and you put no restraint on your physical, carnal, sometimes even mental and spiritual desires. You come to church without preparing your heart and confessing your sins and renewing your mind according to the word and your worship is dry and unfulfilling. You don't restrain yourself and prepare. Listen, Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. And if you put no restraints on your conduct and you stay up till three in the morning goofing around with your friends and then you come to church with three hours of sleep and you're tired and you haven't thought a spiritual thought in three days, there's no wonder why your heart isn't rejoicing in the worship of God. You, you try to witness to an unbeliever, but you can't articulate the truth. The scripture isn't coming to your mind because you haven't spent any time in your Bible. A friend asks you to pray for them, but when you go to God, you feel as though you're talking to a brick wall and your prayers are not being heard because your prayer life has been so weak that the throne of grace has become an unfamiliar place. You fellowship with some brothers or sisters who are talking about the things of God, but you can't relate. You can't enter into the conversation. Or worse, you have no desire to enter into the conversation because you've been filling your mind. With TV, social media, carnal entertainments of this world, and you can't relate to their spiritual conversation. All of us have had these painful experiences, and they cause us to think, well, maybe I'm just a bad Christian. But the truth is, when these things happen, it's often because we have simply neglected the preparation that is required in our race, and we have not been temperate in all things. Well, what is the solution? How do we attain this? How do we do, do do, as verse 25 says, that the man who striveth for mastery is temperate in all things? Well, let me say to you, no successful athlete ever trains alone. Behind every Muhammad Ali is an Angelo Dundee. Athletes have coaches that stand behind them. They have trainers that encourage them and critique them. And push them forward in order to win the prize before them. And you, Christian, have such a coach who is always with you and who is always in your corner and who is always there to help you run the race. Galatians 5 and verse 23 tells us that temperance, self-control, is a fruit of the Spirit of God. How are you to exercise temperance in all things? How are you to run this race of faith? Paul doesn't mean for you to read this verse and think that the secret lies in your natural ability or in the strength of your willpower. Rather, we train and we prepare and we run in the strength which God supplies. 
God has given you His Holy Spirit to indwell you and fill you and empower you to live the Christian life. And as we pray, and as we read the Scriptures, and as we fellowship with God's people, and as we put spiritual things before our eyes, and as we feast on spiritual food, we are giving the Spirit those training materials that He works within us the wherewithal to run. You must see that your race is not something that you run on your own. Your Christian life is something you live, but it's something that you live as God lives in you. And you cannot run God's race in man's strength. The perseverance of the saints is really the perseverance of Christ in His saints. And you must run the race, and you must discipline yourself Not by your own willpower, but in the strength which God gives you through the Spirit of God. You must be temperate in all things. The the, the Spirit is there, but the Spirit is God, and God is a God of means. And God uses those means that He has provided in order to work this grace out within you. And when you starve yourself of spiritual food, you quench the Spirit who's there to empower you. Paul goes on to say about these runners in verse 25. He says, now they do it. That is, they discipline themselves and they train and they prepare to obtain a corruptible crown. At the Isthmian Games, the trophy given to the winner was a garland made from wilted and withered celery. Imagine winning the biggest race in the whole empire only to receive a necklace made from a rotten vegetable. But you see, this was by design. This was done on purpose because it was never about the physical crown. It was about the prestige and honor of winning. But even this worldly fame quickly passes away. Raise your hand if you can name for me a winner of the Isthmian Games. Me either. We don't remember them. We might be able to name some Olympic gold medalists, but there's going to come a day and we won't remember any of them either. Paul's argument here, though, is this. If these athletes are willing to submit to such a laborious and demanding regiment of training to receive a reward that will ultimately pass away, should not we Christians joyfully submit to the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to receive a reward that will never perish? Amen. They do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. It's a crown that never fades away. It's a glory that's never extinguished. The greatest Christians in church history are not those who are the most extraordinarily gifted. Uh, They're not those who are most well-renowned in the church. They are those who were willing to run while others were simply contented to walk. Because they did what they did not for incorruptible rewards or an incorruptible glory, but they did it for an incorruptible reward. 
And while everyone else was indulging in their liberties and coasting along, these Christians wanted to go deeper and further and longer for the will of God and for the glory of God. And if you're going to run this race, then you must have this disciplined, spirit-empowered restraint to forego your liberties for the gospel's sake. That's what this whole passage is about. That's what Paul is trying to encourage you to see. So before we go any further, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, as the Spirit is at work in your life, and as He sanctifies your heart, what liberties have you abstained from? What is something that you can say, this is something that is not sinful for me to do, but God has made it very clear that doing this is not conducive to His will for my life, and because I want to be in the will of God more than anything else, I have abstained from this. Secondly, what areas in your life have you forfeited temperance and self-control? Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, food, drink. If you forfeited self-control in time, the way that you manage the time that God has given you. Have you forfeited self-control in matters of health? with the body that God has given you? Have you forfeited self-control financially with the money that God has stewarded to you? Well, as God brings these specific things to bear on your heart and mind, don't dig in your heels and fool yourself into believing that you can manufacture self-control. Well, I know that I've given up some self-control in this area, but if I try really hard and if I really determine myself, I'm going to make a decision and I'm going to change things. Rather, humble yourself and pray to God because you don't have to do this alone. You can't do this alone. And say, Lord, give me this fruit of self-control. Fill me with your spirit and sanctify me and empower me to serve you with discipline and restraint. Thirdly, in this text, I want you to see the resolve in verse 26. Not only must a competitor possess the necessary discipline to succeed, but as he runs the race, he must ensure that he's running in the right direction. It does you no good to run as hard as you can and as fast as you can if you're not heading towards the correct finish line. In the 1929 Rose Bowl, a man by the name of Roy Wrongway Regals earned his nickname by scooping up a fumble and running 60 yards in the wrong direction to the wrong end zone. And it's known as one of the biggest football blunders in the history of the game. And Paul is urging you in verse 26, don't be like that. He says, I therefore run not as uncertainly. Uh, Literally, he says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't run wondering where I'm going. I'm not trying to get nowhere really quickly. You could pull out of of the church parking lot and you you could zip around the square at 100 miles an hour. But after you've done it four or five times, you'll realize that you've gotten nowhere. We must run our race with a degree of certainty that keeps our minds 
focused on the consummate finish line that is ever before us. Many Christians are frustrated because God has given them gifts and they have a desire to do something. They just have no idea what that is. And let me say to you, this certainty here is a big picture certainty. This doesn't mean that you must always have full certainty of God's specific will for every detail of your life. There will be times in your life in which you will be praying, Lord, what would you have me to do in this specific situation? What this certainty means is that no matter what God brings to pass in your life, no matter what he specifically calls you to do, you can be resolved and certain that you are to live for his glory and the furtherance of his gospel in every situation. Remember last week, we saw that Paul was a master of keeping the main thing the main thing. Whether he was among the Jews or whether he was among the Gentiles, he ran with one consistent purpose. That's why he said, I became all things to all men. Uh, Because I wasn't going to allow the distractions of the law or the distractions of the Gentile customs to, to move my focus away from the one goal that I was running towards, which was to win them with the gospel. He was resolved to preach the gospel. He knew what God wanted him to do. And he ran with certainty to accomplish that task. If you would, hold your place in 1 Corinthians 9. And turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. What is the finish line that you have to have your eyes fixated upon? Uh, What is the ultimate goal? Where are you running to? Philippians 3, and I want you to read with me verses 13 and 14. Paul says this, Brethren... I count not myself to have apprehended. Meaning, I've not gotten there yet. I've not crossed the finish line. Notice the resolve of the Apostle Paul. Notice the certainty of the Apostle Paul. Notice the direction of the Apostle Paul. When he says, but this one thing I do. Not these five things. Not this thing and then this thing and this thing. No, he says, this one thing I do. What is it? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We must run with our eyes fixed on this prize. And this prize is not worldly esteem. This prize is not to be well-renowned in the church. This prize is not even heaven in and of itself. This prize that we must have before us is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To do all for Him. To serve Him. To live for Him. You say, well, I'm in a situation right now and I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, then ask yourself... What option would bring the most glory to God? What option would better further the gospel? What option would would exalt Christ? That's what He wants you to do. And this resolution is what we can be certain about. 
It must be this finish line that not only determines the direction of our race, but also that which motivates us to get there. Christian, waiting for you is not a garland of celery. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross. He ran his race for the joy that was set before him. There is a joy that God has set before you at your finish line. And as we talk about restraint, and as we talk about abstaining from liberties in order to better run the race, we cannot neglect this principle. We don't forego certain rights and privileges to be miserable for Jesus. The point of holiness is not to make you curmudgeon We deny ourselves these things because we find a greater joy in Christ. Amen. There is self-denial in the Christian life. But not ultimate self-denial. We do deny ourselves of things that bring us pleasure. But we never deny ourselves of that which brings us ultimate joy. Because as Christians, that which brings us ultimate joy is Christ himself. A runner denies himself of junk food, not because he hates the junk food, but because he finds a greater joy in fueling his body and training his body to be able to cross the finish line. Sometimes the Christian life will call you to not seek immediate gratification at the expense of a greater joy that will come later. We need to run with a decided and definitive certainty if we're going to run so as to receive the prize. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 9. Still there in verse 26. Paul uses a second analogy. Thus far, he's been talking about runners. But there was another sport that was present at the Isthmian Games. There were several sports present. And one of them was the sport of boxing. Paul says, I fight not as one that beateth the air. At the Isthmian Games... The boxers would wrap their hands in leather and they would soak them in water to harden up the leather. And what would result was fists that were much harder than boxing gloves and they would go in and they would fight. But it didn't matter how hard the leather was or how hard the boxer could hit. If his punches missed the mark, then they were thrown in vain. One of the most notorious fights in modern history is the 1974 match between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. And there's no question that big George Foreman was the harder hitter. But every time Foreman threw one of his haymakers that missed the mark, he was beating the air. It didn't score him any points. It didn't do any damage to Ali. And Foreman exhausted his energy but never connected with a winning blow. And Ali defeated his opponent his tired opponent, with an eighth-round knockout. Dear Christian, do not waste your energy beating the air. Do not exhaust yourself chasing worldly pleasure. Do not tire yourself out with endeavors that have no lasting profit. 
Remember the direction of the race that God has called you to run and spend your energy getting to that destination. Don't come to the end of your Christian life with a long list of things you wish you would have done for God, but you didn't because you wasted your energy on things with no meaning and no value. How many Christians, how many Christians in America will one day stand before God on the last day and as they're giving an account for their lives, all they'll have to show for themselves is a healthy 401k and a nice retirement package and a collection of quarters and baseball cards and concert tickets that they spent their money to go to and vacations and cruises that they went on. And they will have made so much progress in the eyes of the world and they'll have very little spiritual progress to show for themselves. Don't tire yourself out with such things. Remember the direction of the race that God has called you to run and spend your energy getting to that direction. Tire yourself out for the glory of God. Spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. And then... Enter into the Father's rest to the words of well done, thou good and faithful servant. Almost finished with chapter 9. And as we come to verse 27, I want you to see the rejection. The great hope of the Apostle Paul was not a participation trophy. He didn't live his life with the mindset of, well, I'm going to heaven no matter what, so it really doesn't matter if I do anything for God. No, Paul wanted to live a life that was worthy of the gospel that saved him. And he was determined not to let his conduct hinder his message. And he was determined not to let anything get in the way of winning that prize and standing before Christ with something to lay at his feet. So he says in verse 25, or verse 27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. This phrase, to keep under, literally means to wear down, to beat, and to discipline. In verse 26, Paul tells us that he doesn't beat the air. He's not shadow boxing. He's not swinging and missing. He's fighting a great enemy and he doesn't want to waste his energy not connecting with his blows. Well, who is this enemy? It's not the world. It's not the devil. The enemy that Paul is fighting is himself. Your greatest obstacle in your Christian life is you. It's not the persecution of the world. It's not the devil attacking you, as real and as true as those things may be. The thing that keeps you from being holier is you. The thing that's stopping you from getting closer to the Lord is you. The enemy that Paul is fighting is his own inward corruption and remaining sin that wars against his new regenerate nature. And Paul says, I beat it. I beat it. This beating isn't physical. This verse isn't calling you to practice asceticism like Martin Luther did before his conversion. Beating himself, whipping himself, 
trying to make penance for his sins. No, this beating is spiritual. This beating is the mortification of sin. You are called by the help of the Spirit to bring your carnal lusts and passions under subjection and put them to death. And either you will make a slave of your sin or your sin will make a slave of you. You must bring it under subjection. We have a deadly foe that lives within us and we have to beat it down daily or it will beat us down. I appreciate your prayers for me. And it means a lot when I get one of those texts in the middle of the week, hey, I'm praying for you. But you know what my chief prayer request is above all things? Not that I'll be able to have time to prepare for Sunday or that I'll be able to understand the text or whatever the case may be. My chief prayer request is for my own holiness. For my own ability through the Spirit of God to put my sins to death. And that's what you need more than anything else. Not a pastor that can preach the word like no one else or teach theology like no one else, but you need a holy man of God that will stand and do what God's called him to do. And that's what you need of your own life. Don't just read that Christian book so that you can get knowledge and add to your theological resume. You need to be holy. Dad, that's what your children need. They don't need a dad that makes six figures. They need a dad who's holy. Wives, that's what your husband needs. They don't just need a woman who takes care of the home and gets the chores done and teaches the children. They need a holy woman to stand beside them. And so Paul says, if you're going to run this race, you have to keep your body under subjection. You have to beat it. You have to discipline yourself so that your body will serve the purposes of the gospel. And as he does this, he's keenly aware of the reality of disqualification and rejection. Why does Paul do this? Why does Paul beat himself? Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Let me first tell you what Paul doesn't mean. Paul is not saying that he's in jeopardy of losing his salvation. There are those who will attempt to abuse this text and to make it say that. But those who do such a thing are ignoring the context of the passage. And they're also ignoring the clear meaning of other passages that teach that you don't lose your salvation because your salvation was not something that you did in the first place. But Paul does have two very real dangers in view. This is not a hypothetical warning. There is a possibility that you, that me, could become a castaway if we don't run our race well and discipline our bodies. Number one, Paul disciplines himself so that his conduct doesn't discredit his message before those whom he is trying to win. There are Christians who sincerely love the Lord and genuinely desire the salvation of their loved ones, but their witnessing is completely ineffective because of their sinful lifestyle. They try to tell others about the gospel, but they are met with the reply of, Yeah, right. I know how you really live. 
You're no different than me. And when we engage in the same sins that unbelievers commit, we become castaways, unable to reach them with the gospel. There are preachers who have theological training, who are wonderful speakers, but because they have not disciplined themselves morally, they have disgraced the ministry and become castaways, unable to pastor. They've lost the confidence of God's people. What a rebuke it is to the proud Corinthians who thought they could freely indulge in their liberties to hear this holy man, the Apostle Paul, say that I discipline myself so that I don't become a castaway. And secondly, Paul also disciplines himself because of the future judgment that he will face when he stands before Jesus Christ on the last day. At the Isthmian Games, after the race was all over, the runners would stand before the Bema. They would stand before the judgment seat. And the one who disciplined himself and ran according to the rules and crossed the finish line before the other runners, that one would receive the crown and all of the prestige that came with it. But the other runners who didn't would go home, having their heads hung down with no crown and no reward. And Paul lived the way that he did so that he would receive this heavenly crown. So that he wouldn't be a castaway on the last day. Well, brothers and sisters, I plead with you to consider this text in light of your own Christian liberties. Just because you have the liberty to do something doesn't mean that you should. And it would be legalism for me to run through a punch list and to try to tell you what you need to change and what you need to do differently. But I urge you, as we approach the table, examine your heart and examine your manner of life. What a great day it will be when you have run your race well and you will receive that reward. On that day, will you be able to give praise to the Lord and say, you've done this through me and you've done this through me and you've done this through me and I give you the glory for these things? Or will you stand before Him with your head hung down having nothing to show for the life He's given you to live? I pray that it won't be so with any of us, but I pray that we will all be together on that day receiving rewards from our Lord. May God preserve us and may we persevere in Him for His glory and the sake of the gospel. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us. And I thank You for quelling my cough and allowing me to be able to stand and preach Your Word today. And I pray that You use a text like this. Sometimes we need a text like this to wake us up and to shake us, and to remind us of the high calling of God upon our life. Oh God, help us to run the race that is set before us. Help us to strive for the mastery. Help us to restrain our indulgence in liberties and things that don't profit us. And help us to live our lives for your glory. That we might be found approved of you on that day. Lord, we love you, and we praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Oh, bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.